News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Not like the ancient giants of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor, the twin cities frame, keep ancient lands. Your storied pomp cries she with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's FAQ. NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. Here, as always, with Professor Christina Greer and producer Alex Lynn. We're recording on Wednesday, and there have been a number of stories involving the Jews in the last 24 hours. We had word that Donald Trump was going to introduce and will reportedly sign today an executive order meant to deal with anti-Semitism and aimed at uh, college campuses that have been hospitable to the uh, BDS movement. And that received a, a tremendous backlash based in part on the idea, which may or may not be borne out, that this was going to somehow define Judaism formally as a race or nationality as against a religion. And there was a uh, shooting in New Jersey at a kosher grocery store that it now appears uh, according to the uh, mayor there, Mayor Fulop, and Mayor de Blasio in New York, was an act of terrorism aimed uh, at Jews and the press reports that the people involved were uh, black Israelites. And so with all that happening, we're joined by Dr. Annie Pollan, the executive director of the American Jewish Historical Society in Emma Lazarus's sitting room, which is a uh, this remarkable room set up to look like uh, the one that Emma Lazarus lived in with her sisters, I believe and wrote the New Colossus. So it's 2019, and we're here to talk about a woman who uh, wrote this poem in 1883, died in 1887 at age 38, and was put on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty and immortalized, in a sense, in 1903. Annie, can you just tell us a bit about Emma Lazarus, her life, the poem, and then let's talk a little about why some of this seems so relevant more than a century later. Excellent. Yeah, no, I think Emma Lazarus is one of the most interesting Americans and one of the most interesting Jews. So it, it's really exciting to have this opportunity to talk more about her and her life, I think, because what often happens is people know a few lines of the poem. They know, give me your tired and your poor. And that's it. They often don't know who the author is. And if they know the name Emma Lazarus, they know very little about her. And I think the poem actually gains in importance and significance when we know about the context in which it was written and the person who wrote it. So we decided to create this exhibit and we decided to create the exhibit in an immersive way. Um, we have the manuscript where she wrote mm -hmm. the new Colossus along with her whole, all of her work. She basically wrote down in 1886 in a notebook, 
a notebook that she purchased at Fordham's uh, stationery store on Sixth Avenue, mm, mm -hmm. brought it with her to Europe, kind of like the way that if you're shopping and you get, I'm going to get a moleskin travel mm -hmm. journal. So this is what she buys. And um, she started writing at a very young age and was accustomed to writing every day. But in Europe, she's starting to feel ill and she starts to maybe have a sense of her mortality and writes all of her work out and puts the new Colossus first. So we have that book in our archive. And when I came here to the American Jewish Historical Society, I started showing people that book. Christina, I think I brought you. Oh, yeah. I was, I was in the basement yeah. just yeah. <laughs> giggling along with you because we couldn't believe we were touching this leather-bound mm -hmm. book that was such an important part of American history. Exactly. It's, it's there. And people really were excited to see it and they were excited to hear it and we would read it out loud. And it, it made me realize we need more than just showing people the book. We need to create a bigger experience. We need to create the context, literally, in which she wrote it so that we could have conversations about what was going on at the time um, when she wrote it. And I think most pertinent to today is to understand that at the time she wrote this poem, um, there were debates about immigration. Um, and there was also an increase in anti-Semitism in the United States and in Europe. And so um, it makes it, I think, all the more important to kind of go back and look at this time period today. And her original home was on uh, near Union Square, and she was considered one of the wealthier New Yorkers, right? But she still had a great concern for refugees and immigrants. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of that social justice flame that she had? Sure. No, absolutely. She was born in New York in 1849. She grew up most of her life in a brownstone, 36 West 14th Street, mm -hmm. a block and a half from Union Square. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting life because she's in this beautiful brownstone with servants. Her father is a sugar refiner, very wealthy. And yet Union Square is down the block and there are gatherings there. The first Labor Day plays out at Union Square. So she's becoming aware of inequality. And um, so that's like, and the, your dad's a sugar refiner. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's that's that. for the Black History Month episode yes. of Emma Lazarus. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and I, I think much of her life, maybe I don't know that she was making all of those connections. Mm -hmm. But in 1881, she reads a book by uh, Henry George, who is a journalist. And he's written a book called Progress and Poverty about inequality in America. And in which he he talks about the importance of having a tax on landowners mm -hmm. so that money can then go back into the public good. So he wasn't mm -hmm. a socialist, but he understands inequality and wants to do something somewhat radical about it. She reads this book and is kind of floored by it and has a better understanding of her own place in the world, writes a poem called Progress and Poverty, so takes the name of the book. And the poem is about a ship and that there's people kind of frolicking at the top, enjoying their lives, artists, intellectuals, mm -hmm. people with money, and they're able to see the sun and the enlightenment and progress. But at the bottom of the boat, it's it's powered by slaves who cannot see that sun. Mm -hmm. And she, it's, I think that poem and her biographer, Esther Shore, says this, you know, is her kind of awareness of, of her place in this world and the need to, to change it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what was happening in terms of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and immigration in that period and, mm -hmm. and how the, those two things connected and how this was playing out politically mm -hmm. here? as she's becoming engaged with these issues. Yeah. So, I mean, her roots go back, her family's roots go back to America 
uh, in the 1700s. So very early. And one of the biggest misconceptions people have and still have is that they think Emma Lazarus herself was an immigrant because she writes this poem that has mm -hmm. become so associated with immigration. But she's fifth generation. And so her ancestors were among the first Jews in um, New York and, uh, and in the United States and wrote wrote about this. So we have the the writing of her great great uncle Moses Satius who writes a letter to George Washington in 1790 um praising uh praising the United States a government which gives to bigotry no sanction and to persecution no assistance his quote. Um and sends that to George Washington, who then takes that phrase and puts it in a letter back to the Jews of Newport. So she's from this family that's been quite aware of the amazing opportunities that America offers Jews that that don't exist really, hadn't existed in this way anywhere else in the world. So, um, you know, very, in, in, in many ways, very, very cognizant of the religious liberty and the importance of that in this country. So in some ways, America is the the, the country that has and still has, I would argue, the least amount of anti-Semitism ever, in terms, especially in terms of how a government operates. Like the Jews, there's no legislation about Jews. So there's been freedom. Now, in the early years, it was state by state, locality by locality. There were different things that um, were difficult for Jews, and, and there were laws that, for example, Jews could not be part of the militia or Jews could not run for office in the colonial era in different places. And that gets overturned. Was that a question of religious practice as it was understood at the time? So sometimes it, sometimes it plays out with religious practice because sometimes it's like the oath, you have to take oaths of citizenship with a Christian Bible. Um, and that changes in 1740 with the new naturalization act that, that gets rid of that, that, that England does. So in fact, Jews actually have more rights and opportunities in America than they did in England. Um, but Anti-Semitism, I think, existed, and, and historians are now questioning this term, but the term that's been used a lot is thinking about social anti-Semitism. So it's not so much you can't run for office or you can't be in the army, because those things you could be, but you can't come to this hotel or we mm -hmm. don't want you in mm -hmm. this club. Kind of like, I mean, this is, this was going on when I was growing up in Philly. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of the cricket clubs that mm -hmm. were very common. It was just an unspoken rule that one cricket club allowed Jewish mm -hmm. folks and the mm -hmm. other didn't. And the one that did not also did not allow blacks. So it's like, oh, you know, you all belong to this particular mm -hmm. one and, and not the other. Yeah. And she, in the 1870s, there's a spike in this. And there's an incident that people refer to a lot. Joseph Seligman, who is a wealthy financier, um, goes to the Grand Union Hotel in Saratoga Springs. And he's gone there many summers. And that, that year he goes and he's told they don't have a room for him, that they don't allow Jews in the hotel. And so that sparks this huge reaction, but it kind of, people look back on that now and say that this is turning point with like, there's more social anti-Semitism with regard to not being allowed in clubs, hotels, and all of this. So Emma sees that, but I think, you know, more pressing to her is the anti-Semitism that's happening in Europe that is causing pogroms, for example, in Eastern Europe. And so there's violence, anti-Semitism, and manifesting itself in violence, she writes about and says, this is bad. She wants to raise awareness about it. And she wants to help the people who are victims of it. She's aware of what's happening in America and, and notes it. But she's kind of spent her whole life, even among friends, uh, most of her friends were not Jewish. She, she grows up in a very educated, cultured environment. And, and her parents are friends with many people who aren't Jewish, as well as Jewish. 
but she's always aware that she is the Jewess. She's referred to as the Jewess. Sometimes that's just a neutral term, but sometimes that's, you know, of the aspiring class. And so... And she never married. She never married. And neither did her sisters, right? Some sisters married, um, but many of them didn't. And I would say, you know, and, then, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that she was wealthy and didn't have to get married, which mm -hmm. I think is important. Like, she's able to be mm -hmm. an artist, a writer, because she doesn't have to get married and have children, and she doesn't have to get married and have children because there's wealth in the family. Mm -hmm. Um also, we, one of the poems that's in that notebook that we have is a poem called Assurance, um, not dated. The only poem of hers, I believe, that's not dated in this book um, that really gives a sense of that there's a romantic love between two women. So that has mm -hmm. been one of um, the the ideas or the possibilities. Of course, we don't know uh, mm -hmm. for sure. But she had close relationships, I would say, with men and with women. Um, but we don't know the exact right, nature, the nature of that. Yeah. So in her life, there's a, uh, I believe, a German Jewish elite that's been in New York and is reasonably well established at that point. And then, in part, because of these pogroms, as I understand it, and the upheavals happening in Eastern Europe, you end up with a whole bunch of Russian and Eastern European Jews who come here and, you know, right are on the, the Lower East Side and are a very different group of Jews. So Emma Lazarus starts to think about, uh, you know, the idea of a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. And she starts to think about these very different Jews, the tired, poor, huddled masses at the same time. Can you talk about that sort of awakening and, and, and class consciousness, I suppose? Absolutely. So a couple things. One is that you're absolutely right. There was an established German, Central European Jewish community that was here in America and had been for a long time. But her family is Sephardic, so they're even earlier than the Central European Jews. So she is really considered, you know, her family's an aristocratic family among the Jews in New York. And then in the 1880s, you have this arrival of masses, huddled masses of Eastern European Jews who are fleeing Eastern Europe. They're coming for economic opportunity, but there's also religious persecution. That's part of the mix. And in 1881, 1882, starting to arrive in huge numbers that could not be accommodated in the shelters that existed. And so Jacob Schiff, who was of the German Jewish uh, wave of immigration and a, a wealthy financier, creates Schiff's Island, or they call it Schiff's Island in Ward's Island in the East River. Mm -hmm. And the huddled masses are going out to this island, and Emma Lazarus goes to visit them. And she's like, oh, my God, the conditions are terrible here. We need to do something. She does not speak Yiddish. She does not observe the religion in the same way they do. They're Orthodox. She is not observant. But she feels a sense of responsibility and a sense of peoplehood. And I think that that sense of peoplehood was stoked not just from the arrival of the refugees, but rather from a longer-running fascination and interest and connection to Jewish history and literature. So her Jewish identity comes from literature, it comes from history, it comes from translations, it comes from all of this kind of intellectual work. As opposed to being an active member of, say, a synagogue right. and a vibrant sort of homogenous Jewish community. Exactly. So even though Russia. even though her uncle at the time and even her great-great-uncle were leaders of Sherit Israel and her family was a member of Sherit Israel, she was probably there for the high holidays. And she notes that she celebrated Passover. But her Jewish identity on a daily basis was not stoked by religious observance, but rather by reading. 
So she would read Heinrich Gretz's History of the Jews. She would do translations. And so when these East European Jews arrive, and even though they're so different, she has an understanding of Jewish peoplehood that transcends national borders and connects to these people. Again, not knowing the language, not observing in the same mm -hmm. way. Um, and people wrote about that. You know, after she died, one of the obituaries about her, the reminiscences about her was by a man named James Hoffman, who was head of the Hebrew Technical Institute, which she was... Um, important in, in starting, saying how she would come into a room and there was actually a riot one day with the refugees. There was not enough food or there was a suit. Something happened. Mm -hmm. And she was able to calm people down by her presence. Again, not knowing the language, not, they don't, but something about her and her connection to this people was seen as calming. Now, during her lifetime, I mean, was she, what level of famous was she sort of inside of her community and outside of her community? Because we know that the poem didn't end up on the, the base of the Statue of Liberty until after she's passed. So where, what was her standing in, say, like New York City and even beyond? So she was famous as a writer. She was not famous as the poet for the Statue of Liberty. Uh -huh. she, was, she was well known as a writer. She wrote for Century Magazine, which was published actually in the, what's now the Barnes & Noble building on Union Square, in the northern part of Union Square, um, and was run by her good friends Richard Gilder and his wife Helena Decay Gilder. But she wrote for this kind of mass audience. She wrote for the New York Times. She wrote for Scribner's. And so she's known as a poetess. In fact, William James, when he met her, was so entranced by her and says, I've met this wonderful woman, a poetess, a Jewess, a magazineess. <laughs> <laughs> but he, and he writes that to his wife. And he's just like, and I never want to not be with her. And he writes that to his wife, which was interesting. Okay. Um, like if my husband That's was writing episode. a note to like, <laughs> But, um, you know, she was no, she was, so she was this literary person, um, had an epistolary relationship with Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example. Uh -huh. friends with uh, Rose Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, um, and uh, Richard Gilder and Helena Decay Gilder. So has this very lively, important social set and social circle. So she's well known. Um, when she dies, um, again, at a young age, she's 38 years old, the New York Times has a big obituary for her, but no mention of the new Colossus because that was just kind of – right. that wasn't – noted at the time in the way that it is later. Do you think that part of her empathy for these newly arriving Jews had to do with her relationship with Sephardic Jewish tradition? You know, I was looking at this poem, 1492, uh, right before coming in, which I had not read before, which calls it, you know, that two-faced year. She's referring there to the expulsion of the uh, Sephardic Jews from Spain and to uh, Columbus's voyage here. So the way she's describing it as two-faced, which is interesting, just given how our understanding of our national origins has changed, is that the sin was in Spain. And then here was, in America, a virgin world where doors of sunset part, saying, and echoes of the new Colossus, Ho, all who weary enter here. There falls each ancient barrier that the art of race or creed or rank devised to rear grim bulwark hatred between heart and heart. And, you know, that's the end, presenting America as this land of unlimited opportunity and the place where, where people can be free from, uh, mm -hmm. from, from, from past the bound them. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. She, she writes that. And I think, again, this ties into the sense of a larger peoplehood buoyed by an understanding of history um, about what Europe was, which was a closed door for Jews. And she really felt strongly about that and that America was an open door for Jews. 
um, of course, right in that poem, she's not um, noting the Native Americans who are here. She's Virgin not Lynn. noting exactly. She's not noting the African American experience or the of slavery. That's not part of that poem. But I think in part that's because she's thinking about the sweep of history for the Jews in that in that particular regard. It seems to me like that might have opened her up to. Uh thinking about that history to a sympathy with, with these other very different Jews who mm -hmm. didn't speak the, the same tongue who were coming at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I really, she could, you know, and even, it's interesting. So uh, Longfellow wrote a poem in the 1850s called The Jewish Cemetery at Newport. Mm -hmm. And it was basically calling Jews a dead nation, quote, Jews were a dead nation, on and on and on. She writes a poem when she's 17 or 18 years old, I think 18 years old, called The Jewish Synagogue at Newport. So she shifts the mm -hmm. locale, right, away from the cemetery to the synagogue. And she's talking about Jewish history and the, the, the vibrancy of it and the vibrancy of the Jewish people um, and that it's not a closed book. And so she's kind of, I think, in part, is trying to kind of imagine what a future of Jews could be through looking at history. And she's not afraid of fighting back against Longfellow mm -hmm. of all people, yeah. right? And, and I think there is a, a fearlessness that she has. And maybe it comes from being like the ultimate, in some ways, even though coming from a wealthy family, but marginal in the sense of she's marginal and, and unique within a Jewish community because she's Sephardic and she's also a woman. So she can't be like a leader in the traditional Jewish sense um, mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and she's under, she sees herself in some ways as, as part of the social circle of all these, you know, waspy friends that she has, but she knows they're also referring to her as the Jewess, like she will always be the Jewess. And so she's marginal in that, but is, is almost, I don't know, through her writing, perhaps trying to work out something more inclusive and more expansive with regard to American identity. So you're such an amazing educator and historian. Oh, um, go on. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> to, to have that said by Christina Greer, the amazing I mean, political scientist and educator. I mean, means seriously, a lot. I could listen to you talk about this all day. But, I, you know, before we get to the pedestal. Can you answer the question about Zionism? Yes, yes. Um, so, and, and this connects to the sense of peoplehood she had. One of the things she's realizing as she's writing about anti-Semitism in Europe is that she doesn't think it's going to go away. She's also concerned because these Eastern European Jews who are coming with their own traditions and culture in such large numbers, she's worried that they're going to lose their own civilization and their own sense of culture by Americanizing so quickly. And one of the hardships that Jews have that no other immigrant group has, as far as I know, is that their Sabbath is a work day in America. On the one hand, she knows they have to get a job. They have to go out and work. And she forms the Hebrew Technical Institute so that people can learn vocational jobs and, and, and get work. And where was that located? In New York. On the east side, okay. uh, like what's now the East Village. Okay. And on the one hand, she knows they have to go to work. On the other hand, she's worried like it's like is it taking the carpet out, you know, too quickly that if they lose the Sabbath, which has been so important. Mm -hmm. So she writes about that specifically in the American Hebrew, um, which is part of our exhibit. And, and she also thinks you know, while American Jews have a marvelous opportunity in America and she doesn't want to leave America and she thinks the United States is great. I mean, she thinks there are problems with it, but she thinks that that should be a great home for the Jews. She also says there should be a place in Palestine. And in part, she's inspired by George Eliot. 
who writes a book called Daniel Deronda in the 1870s about uh, Jews and their place in Europe and the need to kind of think about uh, a nation in some way. So she's she starts to talk about Zionism before there's the term Zionism. That won't be invented until the 1890s. And here she is in the 1880s. And a lot of American Jewish leaders are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. What are you saying? Mm-hmm. Um don't mess up our situation here. It's it's hard. They don't say this explicitly, right? But she, Orthodox rabbis don't like it. Reform rabbis don't like it. And she gets all of this mail after writing this piece about a potential homeland in Palestine. And she then is quite witty. And in, in opening her next essay the next week, she goes, well, if anyone thought that the Jews had dual loyalties and didn't care about America, they should see the letter that I got this week. You know, that, that mm-hmm. all these letters that are saying America is the best thing ever. What are you doing? That, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but she doesn't, again, she doesn't think American Jews should give up on America. She just thinks that in addition, there should be this place where Europe's Jews can go. And again, she's saying this in 1882, 1883. And so she's, she's fearless, you know, in the sense of what she's willing to say. Um, And I think, again, that's stoked by a sense of, of peoplehood. So just before we, run out of time. Can we jump ahead to 1903? And uh, can you take us through the story of how this poem <laughs> ends up on the uh, on the pedestal? Perfect. The yes. Room? So in 1903, the plaque is put inside the base of the statue uh, of the pedestal. Again, she's died in 1887. So she has no idea this will happen. But she did write the poem connected to the Statue of Liberty. And specifically, a woman named Constance Carey Harrison is raising money for the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. So the French had sent the statue. It's called Liberty Enlightening the World. They've been raising money for it. But the French have given, but the the Americans are supposed to pay for the pedestal. And that money isn't there. So Constance Carey Harrison says, artists will pay for it. Let's get the artists (laughs) together to write their sketches and, and draw their sketches. And then we'll put together a portfolio. And we'll auction that portfolio off, and that money will help get the pedestal built. And so she turns to Emma, and she says, Emma, will you write a poem for this? And she goes, oh, you're a portfolio fiend. (laughs) She teases her about being this portfolio fiend. That's all you talk about. And she says, I don't write to order. Yeah, yeah. Emma, she's not a, you know, she's, she's, she's got a strong spirit. And then a, according to Constance Carey Harrison, she then says, but Emma, think of all those Russian refugees you are so fond of visiting, you know, down at the harbor on the Lower East Side and um, think that they'll see the statue as their boats come in. And then Emma said, her eyes lit up and she said, I'll do it. And comes back two days later with the new Colossus. And then that poem is celebrated. It's read on December 3rd, 1883 at the, at the auction. And it's the only poem read aloud. So it was given recognition at the time and it was reprinted in some other um, publications, but it fades from memory. And then in 1886, she knows it's important because she writes it in her manuscript and it's the first po. It's the first she puts entry it first. Exactly. in the leather-bound book. And that takes some kind of. In some ways, that takes a certain resolve because in 1886, the statue's put on the pedestal. There's a big ceremony. No mention of her or okay. that poem. But yet she knows, and she's like, "I'm putting this in my book." <laughs> and again, unfortunately, she's ill and she dies. And there's lots of obituaries written about her. Only one mentions the new Colossus, and that's the one written by Constance Carey Harrison, who Mm, asked her to do mm -hmm. it, and that's how we have that story. But in 1901, a good friend of hers, Georgina Schuyler, descendant of Alexander Hamilton, is in a bookstore and comes across a used 
you know, an old book by Emma Lazarus, remembers her friend and says, we have to do something about this. So goes to her family and the wards, which were another important family in New York, and they then raise the money to get this bronze plaque on the statue. And that's finally put on in 1903. So let's jump forward by a century and a little mm-hmm. more. And somehow this poem keeps coming up in recent years. You had the Trump official who said it needs an edit. <laughs> and pointed out that, it, it, you know, look, that wasn't even there when they put the statue up. You know, that was just a retcon. Mm-hmm. And we're having this moment, uh, this long moment about immigration and migrants where, where suddenly all of this history seems vital and immediate again. How did you connect uh, Emma Lazarus and her life to what's happening now? Um, with the Trump administration in particular, but really this is this is a world migration, uh, um, you know, the largest since World War II now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you keep this history that, that you guys hold and store and, and try to circulate here relevant to younger Americans and people who are learning about all of this for the first time? One of the things that I think is so important about her context is that it was a context in which people were debating a lot of ideas. So when she writes the poem, The New Colossus, that's not exactly how everyone feels, right? In 1882, the Chinese exclusion law has passed. And so not everyone is saying, give me your tired and your poor. She said it. She wrote it. She was brave to write it. That's what she believed in. She believed in an inclusive and expansive American identity. Um, and, and I think she really believed through this poem that America is its better self through caring for immigrants and understanding the enthusiasm, the energy that immigrants bring. This was not a policy. This was a poem. But it was ideas that really have, for decades, resonated with, with many people. But what we think is most important to point out, especially when we work with school children, is that she took part in the debate by writing the poem. She had a voice. She expressed her voice. She was a civic participant. And she wrote a poem. She didn't do a tweet. (laughs) She wrote a poem. And she knew history. So our thinking is let's teach people about history. Let's teach people about the time. And then specifically with students, we're interested in what they have to say. So we asked students, we did a pilot curriculum last spring, and we said, if you could write a poem for the Statue of Liberty, what would it be? And this was after learning about Emma Lazarus. This was after spending time with the primary sources. And they wrote these magnificent poems. I mean, really, they went home one night, came back the next day, um, and they had magnificent teachers, not not me, the, the, their, their school teachers who were so good who had been teaching them a, a, along the year, but the the kind of content that they were able to see her book, they were able to study, you know, came into it not knowing who she was at all, learned about her time, learned about debates, and then wrote their poems. Well, I mean, Annie, yes, you give credit to these magnificent teachers for these middle schoolers, but, you know, how we met was when you were running educational programs at the Tenement Museum and incorporating not just Jewish voices and experiences at the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side, but you're the one who spearheaded the new exhibit, Under One Roof, which highlights a Jewish refugee family, a Puerto Rican family, and a Chinese immigrant family as well, and sort of really linking those shared narratives. And so, you know, bringing it a few blocks north to the American Jewish Historical Society, I mean, we're in a moment now where we've got rampant white supremacy and white nationalists, anti-black racism, and this rise of anti-Semitism. And so how do you see the role of the American Jewish Historical Society 
in a 2019-2020 context um, to educate, say, a new generation, but also older generations as well about some of the history and linking it to modern day conversations and concerns? Well, first of all, I think we're, we'll be better prepared to have those conversations if we know history, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, says the historian. <laughs> says the historian. Um, you know, I think right now we, ha- we have to move away from, you know, these corners that people have painted themselves into with like, I like this, I like this. But if you leave that aside for a minute and like, let's look at some texts together. Let's debate mm-hmm. them. Let's study them. Then we're creating a framework for conversation that needs to happen. And I think, you know, Emma Lazarus, when she wrote the poem, she didn't say just let the Jewish huddled masses or her own people. Mm-hmm. She said, Huddled masses, right? She wasn't specifying a particular group. She was and writing about America. Who are employed and educated yes. and can no, come here scientists. and like yes. put down yes. a mortgage, no. right? No, 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 no. And, um, you know, that, that she's kind of defining America as a place for all of these groups. She, she knows her own particular identity well, but then steps outside of that particular identity to articulate something broader as Americans. And I think we have a lot to learn from that, right? How does it look like when we have a classroom of kids who have all different backgrounds, but they can study American texts together and have that conversation? Like, how can we do a better job anywhere along the political spectrum of knowing where what our backgrounds are, our, our, our genealogical backgrounds or our cultural backgrounds, knowing what those are, but using that as a base to have a broader conversation about what a shared American identity is. That, I think, is really the legacy of Emma Lazarus, you know, because she when she wrote 1492, she wrote that after she wrote The New Colossus. So it was almost like The New Colossus was the, that's her American poem, but then she's also going to write something for the Jews as well. And that was her 1492 poem. So how can we do this better? And I, I really do believe that history in a setting like this, where kids can, kids, not just kids, but adults can come together and have conversations about texts is going to do us a lot of good. And tell us a little bit about this room we're sitting in, which mm-hmm. is absolutely stunning. It's essentially a remake of Emma Lazarus's living room. But tell us a little bit about the technology that's in here. Mm-hmm and this book that we're looking at right now. Perfect. So um, I have to give props to Pamela Keach, who is our furnishings curator, who had worked at the Tenement Museum and uh, designed all these tenement apartments. And I said, Pam, you know, what, what, what would you think about creating an apartment of a rich person from the 1880s? And she's like, <laughs> sure, I'll give that a try. And so we we didn't have Emma Lazarus's furniture, but she sourced it, um, looking at 19th century paintings of similar societies and all of that. And interspersed in the room are books Emma Lazarus would have read, uh, articles she wrote, all sorts of things that really speak to her particular context and time. But in this very center of the room, there is an illuminated storybook that's, that is kind of channeled through projections. When you turn a page, now everyone's going up to it and they're touching it like it's a screen, but it's a book. And when you turn the page, each page turn triggers a new chapter mm-hmm. that uh, has the sources that tell Emma's story and goes through her history and her life up to the writing of the New Colossus. And at the very end of it, we have some of the poems that the students wrote um, that are we filmed some of the students reading their poems. Because I think Emma Lazarus's legacy is not just the New Colossus, the poem itself, although that would be a great legacy in and of itself, but it's also this legacy of inviting others and to step on a pedestal and become the new Emma Lazarus. Mm-hmm. What do they have to say for the Statue of Liberty today? And what do they want America to be? And having heard some of those poems, I really wish some adults could write them to help process their thoughts about 
immigration. Maybe that's why I like to give homework to our listeners, even though Harry and Alex and Adam never do the homework that I suggest. I'm still waiting for them to get their water tested for lead <laughs> from two months ago. Um, so maybe our homework for the week, dear listeners, is to write uh, your own new Colossus poem. We would love that. And we would keep them in our archive. And we're actually, um, we're, we're doing a big competition for these poems for kids for middle school and high school. So if you're a middle schooler out there listening or a high <laughs> That's schooler, our big demographic. Maybe, or the parent or grandparent or friend or teacher, uh, or if you're a teacher, please go to our website and find out about our curriculum and our contest. We'll be announcing that we, uh, we will be doing a big award ceremony in June for that. And we're currently raising money and have grants pending to extend that contest to adults and to college students. And so and the website again is AJHS.org. AJHS.org. Annie, thank you so much. Thank you. And um, I, I hope we'll keep this conversation going. As you've said, you know, actually engaging in text and with ideas, I think, is really the central thing to avoid the risk of uh, forgetting history and then repeating it. Yes. And I forgot to add, too, that the second part of this exhibition, which will open uh, in 2020, is an exhibit about Union Square. And so we're looking at, you know, in part because Emma Lazarus lived across the street from Union Square, but if the sitting room is a place where people wrote their ideas, Union Square is a place where people spoke their mm -hmm. ideas. And so we'll be looking at a lot of the soapbox speeches, speeches that Frederick Douglass delivered, speeches that suffragists delivered, all sorts of things we'll be getting into. From the sitting room to the soapbox. Right. And I really do hope that people will visit AJHS because currently there's also an exhibit bit on Russ and Daughters. For those of you who like whitefish, <laughs> lots and bagels, it's a really great exhibit about a four, four generations of an amazing family. It's a real American story, but it's about perseverance. And, I mean, and it's an immigrant the, story. Yeah, and the shared mm -hmm. identity of food, which so which crosses so many cultures. Um, Harry and I had the, the pleasure of partaking in some of their whitefish and it's quite impressive. Um, so I hope our listeners will stop by AJHS and sit in Emma Lazarus's living room or the recreation of it and see the Russ and Daughters exhibit. We hope you come. Come visit us. Thank you so much. I had one question. What did you guys decide to put in her discard? Oh, so her her waistband, one of the things we wanted this to feel like is if you just walked into her sitting room. Mm -hmm. And um, writers, for all you writers out there, know that you don't always get things right on the first try. And so you toss things out. And so this is the, you know, now we have laptops with a, an icon of a waste basket, but this is a real waste basket with a real piece of writing crumpled up. Um, it's not it's not what we have in the archive that we've crumpled up, but it's just to simulate that kind of, that, that sense that she was just in the room writing. Thank you, Annie Pollan. Dr. Annie Pollan, one of you, my Dr. favorite New Yorkers. <laughs> one ever. of my favorite people ever. So <laughs> nice to be with you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and is supported by listeners like you. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and this week we actually recorded at the American Jewish Historical Society. Special thanks to Dr. Annie Pollan, the executive director of the AJHS, and also a thank you goes to Alex Brooklyn, our executive producer, and Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. Remember, tune in to FAQ NYC. If you don't know, now you know. 
Yay. And I'm glad you two are together. I don't like the fact that I feel like you guys are besties and now I'm on the couch. <laughs> well, we're doing Hanukkah dinner together. Too which, bad you have to go to Lisbon. <laughs> which night of Hanukkah no, is that? My first the first night. So it's December 22nd. Yeah. Oh, this is so fun. Don't go on it. Move Hanukkah. You're head of AJHS. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that means you can move past Hanukkahs. Yeah, well, Not, yeah that's uh, right. <laughs> I have no control over the present. <laughs>